The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome this Monday morning. You're watching Squawk Box. In your headlines, China's economic recovery picks up pace. Growth topping pre-pandemic levels in the fourth quarter, coming in ahead of expectations at 6.5%. Joe Biden promises to immediately roll back Trump-era policies on the climate. This as Washington remains on high alert over threats of violence just days ahead of the inauguration. Armin Laschet is named the new chairman of Germany's Christian Democratic Union, putting him in pole position to become chancellor. The centrist continuity candidate wins a weekend vote and vows to continue Angela Merkel's work and bring the party together. I want to do everything I can to ensure that we go through this year together, pass the state elections together in a few weeks, and then make sure that the CDU-CSU wins the next chancellorship in the federal elections. Samsung slides in Seoul as the de facto leader, Vice Chairman J.Y. Lee, is sentenced to two and a half years for bribery and corruption. And here in Europe, the French waste giant Suez receives an offer from Ardian and global infrastructure partners that could lead to a takeover bid as it continues to fend off the advances from its rival and main shareholder, Veolia. So very good morning, everybody. I'll let you into a little bit of a secret. We came up here this morning all ready to go, full of energy, and the director said, you know, this is Blue Monday, don't you? This is that day in January when everybody starts consulting the lawyers, thinking about how they're going to depart from their beloved. Well, let's tell you about the Chinese data, because I think we can park some of those miseries to one side here, at least on the part of the Chinese economic recovery, because the numbers actually were pretty good. China's economic growth rate topped pre-pandemic levels in the fourth quarter, coming in ahead of expectations at 6.5% there. So we've got 6.5% on the fourth quarter. That gave us a uh, round number of 2.3% for full year 2020. So obviously it grew at its lowest rate in four decades at that 2.3% level. But as you can see, some acceleration as we came into the fourth quarter as the Chinese authorities really got on top of the pandemic and also figured out how to provide additional stimulus for the economy. And I just want to show you these two numbers, retail sales and industrial output, because they tell us slightly different stories about the state of the economic rebound. Industrial output beat expectations in at 7.3%, but at 4.6%, the retail sales number, which is all about domestic demand and domestic confidence, was just a little off the pace at 4.6%. Let me just take the director all the way around here. Since he was so miserable this morning talking about Blue Monday, we'll make him work for his supper or at least for his breakfast. Um, Shanghai Composite then up nearly 1% here. The Shenzhen market up 1.4%. But we've seen a little bit of money coming off the table. 
in other parts of the Asian story this morning. And if you looked at some of the resilience and the strength of the dollar coming out of the, uh, the, the Friday session and into uh, today, then uh, there are some arguments for saying that some of those markets that have benefited from the weaker dollar trend and the buy-in on the reflation story may just see a little bit of uh, sluggishness in trade today or just a little pause for thought as investors rethink think how committed they are to the broader dollar weakness reflation message. Now, let's refocus on this China data. Sam has been combing through the numbers here for us to pull out some of the interesting nuggets. And Sam, it still seems to be very much a story of two economies, the supply side doing well, the stimulus helping, but the domestic demand numbers still ailing a little bit. Good morning to you, Jeff. Yep, you're absolutely right. I mean, broadly speaking, this GDP print does certainly confirm this first in, first out story we've been speaking about, uh, particularly the last six months, despite the virus and these ongoing US-China tensions. And it really does verify now some of this positive data that we have been getting out of the mainland. That uh, Q4 reading comes off the back of a 4.9% expansion in Q3 and that 6.8% slump we saw in Q1. Since then, we have seen a pretty impressive rebound as Beijing has managed to keep this virus largely under control. But officials are still cautious. And that is because, as you say, that data that we got out today does still uh, paint a very mixed picture. We are still seeing pockets of the economy that are still recovering. Those retail sales and those fixed asset investment numbers actually missed expectations. Retail sales up 4.6%, so slowing from November. We do need to factor in, we did see that Singles Day shopping festival in November, which did spur consumption. But officials have said that fluctuations in consumer spending has been in part down to a resurgence in cases. Consumption did largely lag this economic recovery uh, for most of last year and actually overall retail sales contracted 3.9% for the year, really highlighting this weakness. That was reportedly the first contraction since 1968. In saying that though, consumption did make up for 54.3% of 2020 GDP, slightly lower than 2019, uh, so still a big driver. But retail sales do have a way to go until we see those numbers that we are used to seeing in China. Fixed asset investment up 2.9%, as I say, missing expectations. Still better than the first 11 months of the year. We have seen a lot of investment in things like uh, infrastructure projects, but also the medical sector with this pandemic. But of course, once again, the real bright spot was those industrial output numbers is up 7.3%, up from November's rise of 7%. The industrial sector has been largely supporting this economic recovery and this data out today just goes to show it is continuing to do so. In fact, for the year, it came up up 2.8% year on year and that's as domestic demand has been holding up well as we have seen a boost in infrastructure spending by the government and so this has largely been really a government policy support-led recovery we've seen in China. But guys, back to you in London. Thank you so much for that. Shamila Whelan joins us, Deputy Chief Economist at Alethea Capital. Shamila, welcome to the program this morning. Let, let me just get a, a, a take from you on what you think the latest numbers tell us about the shape of the Chinese economy at this stage. 
Well, the latest numbers are interesting. Of course, it's showing some moderation, but I would argue that that's to be expected, right? You've seen the post-lockdown recovery and a huge bounce back after that. And it stands to reason that you should be should have been expecting some moderation there. Uh, the question really is, where are the underlying fundamentals for the Chinese economy? And there we, I'd argue that the underlying pro, uh, fundamentals in terms of the recovery in corporate for- profitability, which is important for the an investment-led business cycle upturn, are very much in place still. Extraordinary that the economy actually grew, though, given the events that uh, started in China over the course of last year. Shamila, let me, though, ask you about the consumption side, because that's been the area that continues to be uh, showing some uh, weakness. Retail sales falling 3.9% last year. Consumption very much underperforming what you're seeing on the investment side. What happens in 2021 to resurrect the retail and consumption story? I think 2021 this year, you know, you're going to see consumption continuing to recover because the labor market is improving, right, in terms of wage growth as well as employment businesses starting to expand again, right? So, and, you know, there's a cyclical recovery, but there's also the underlying structural story in China where growth is becoming very, very much domestic demand-led. And and that's on the back of the government's policies in terms of promoting domestic growth, including Xi's dual circulation economic framework policies there. And um, the usual that we know, the demographics, the growing middle class. So I'm less, I'm more sanguine, let's say, about the Chinese recovery continuing and becoming more stable this year. Shamila, very good morning to you. If I may very politely disagree with you, I think the structural problems are queuing up uh, for China as well. This is a country which has seen the biggest expansion of debt, uh, a huge expansion of debt over the last couple of years, 350% debt to GDP now. Uh, And if anything showed me how concerned the Chinese are about it, it's not the economic statistics, it's the fact that Jack Ma was slapped down. Now, that may have been political, but it was also the fact they're very, very concerned about the growth of shadow financing as well. Surely, this is a country that's got all the debt in the world now, but it doesn't have the growth from the consumption side. That is a big red flag, isn't it? I mean, I mean I, I'm not going to you know, uh, dispute you on the debt problem, right? I think we're, you know, we're all very aware that you know, debt, the debt overhang, even before the, before the current pandemic, has been an issue and a structural impediment for China. Um, and, and that goes... That was one of the reasons why you didn't see a massive loosening of monetary policy and fiscal policy stimulus during the pandemic. They're very, very much aware of that. But, you know, a couple of things. One is the the debt issues have be, are being addressed and has been they've been addressing it for the last four or five years. And sure, you know, the. Um, the whole IPO listing and that got has gotten delayed and, the you, you know, it's bad from. And in, from a market's point of view and foreign investor sentiment, but what they are trying to do there is put the due diligence in place to stop a buildup of debt that is unsustainable there, right? Um, and the next thing is that at the end of the day, the Chinese economy is a closed economy, right? For all intents and purposes, you, you know, the capital account is still close so you can't get a a traditional crisis the way uh one would normally think about crisis where you've got foreign capital flight which uh, precipitates and 
debt crisis in the financial system. Shamila, it's a terrific debate and we will continue to have this for many years as well. But I like having it. And thank you very much indeed for joining us this Monday morning. Shamila Whelan, who is Deputy Chief Economist at Altia Capital. Right, let us move to the other side of the Pacific after the break, because coming up on the show, President-elect Joe Biden looks to hit the ground running with a blitz of executive orders being prepared. We'll have more on this after the break on Scorebox. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. The market rally is stalling over the course of last week. Uh, we saw patches of weakness in the trade uh, as uh, the week unfolded. And even news flow around uh, Pres- President-elect Joe Biden's stimulus package not doing much to bolster the markets. So the $1.9 trillion package unveiled. But uh, as you can see, markets still pulling back Friday session. Seven tenths down on the S&P. Some of those losses eclipsed by the Nasdaq are falling close to nine tenths of a percent. Over the course of the week, we also saw that reversal. Roughly about one and a half percent coming off the S&P 500. But big moving stocks in session, uh, Goldman Sachs weighing on the Dow. And for the other major markets, Apple was the real underperformer. What we had elsewhere uh, across the markets, though, with some of this uh, risk-off moves, that's been a supportive feature for the dollar. And we've really climbed off the trough, uh, the two-and-a-half-year trough that we've witnessed on that trade. This morning, uh, dollar is also climbing versus sterling and euro. You can see it is supported uh, sterling 135.66 this morning. Dollar is uh, weakening, though, versus the Japanese yen as we talk about a risk-off move. That is a supportive factor for Japanese, uh, the Japanese currency. Dollar gaining versus the yuan as we digest the latest printout of China on uh, the uh, latest figures. Let's get into what we've got on the oil trade. It uh, has had uh, a real run of strength since the start of this year, but it has run in to a little bit of profit-taking concerns about further lockdowns and restrictions required at this stage to tame the virus, and that has impacted the demand uh, sentiment. And you can see six tenths down on WTI Brent, drifting off about three quarters, one percent, and back below $55. Steve. Excellent, Karen. Thank you very much. Right. In his first 10 days in office, the president-elect Joe Biden plans to announce a slew of executive orders. His administration plans to tackle what it calls the four crises, uh, COVID-19, the economic downturn, racial injustice and climate change. Now, following his inauguration, slated for Wednesday, of course, uh, Biden plans to begin issuing uh, the new measures aimed at both turning the page on some Trump-era policies and uh, moving forward, of course, with his own plans. Meanwhile, Washington is on high alert. In fact, the whole country, every state capital, is on really high alert for possible security threats uh, during Biden's inauguration following the deadly events at Capitol Hill on the 6th of January. Dan Sheneman has more. The nation's capital is on alert. 
having uh, our fellow Americans storm the Capitol uh, in an attempt to overthrow the government uh, certainly warrants heightened security. Some 15,000 National Guard troops deployed in the district ahead of Wednesday's inauguration. Across the country, state capitals are under heavy security. Uh, so we're ready for two people and we're ready for thousands of people. In Michigan, a small group of protesters gathered at the Capitol in Lansing. Some of them armed. A bunch of people decided not to come today because of the fear of the National Guard and uh, our state boys over there watching us right now. At other state houses, there is a heavy police presence and the National Guard has been called in to protect at least 13 state capitals. And hopefully people will go home, but we just need people maybe to take a deep breath for a bit and kind of relax and, and it will be okay. Hope that peace can be achieved with a massive demonstration of strength. Dan Sheneman, NBC News. And JP Morgan has reported a 42% jump in fourth quarter earnings per share, beating estimates. This is the America's biggest lender, released almost $3 billion in reserves, citing hopes that vaccines and a fresh U.S. stimulus package will boost growth. Citi also reported better-than-expected earnings and lowered provisions by $1.5 billion, while Spargo released $757 million in reserves after also topping forecasts. In total, the three lenders released more than $5 billion in provisions. Shares in all three banks fell after the results. And just a quick look at what lies ahead as Bank of America and Goldman Sachs will post their results tomorrow, with U.S. markets closed for Martin Luther King Jr. Day today. Morgan Stanley and BNY Mellon report on Wednesday. Uh, just a couple of points here. The front-loading provisions uh, early in the year in 2020 certainly helped these banks uh, as they then brought back some of those reserves, uh, given the, the outlook that they're now seeing. The other big feature was around the trading portfolio. We had expected, uh, given what we saw the market performance in the final quarter of last year, thanks to uh, the election, that was a very supportive backdrop for some of these uh, institutions. City making, I think it was $23 billion in markets and security services unit. That was up 29%, but outpaced by JP Morgan, up 34%. That said, for me, there were still some disappointing numbers around Wells Fargo in particular. And uh, to the extent they had to wheel out the old uh, favourite for markets in the form of extreme cost cutting. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? This, this so-called recapturing, when you write back in the reserves, ultimately helping to give a positive impression of the overall numbers for the banks here. We talked a lot about this last week and about ultimately how the numbers would look better than most of the forecasts here because the analysts are all over the place at the moment trying to figure out what the implication of the um, pandemic is on underlying earnings and, of course, the state of the U.S. economy. What I thought was instructive was even as uh, those write-backs happened, that recapturing happened effectively and we saw lowering of uh, risk provisions here the market reaction was a little bit of a ho-hum. There was nothing really that excited investors to, uh, to lift share prices uh, through the end of the week, Steve. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to say here. First of all, and you've just, both of you made an absolute key point. Isn't it lovely to see a banking um, uh, sector, i.e. in the US, that actually makes provisions ahead of time, unlike the Europeans, because of perhaps different accounting rules, that only ever take those lost provisions at a great stage down the future. That is why we have zombie banks and companies in Europe, and less so in the United States. It's an absolutely key structural issue. Secondly, of course, did you notice that all of them, regardless of how well they're doing individually in investment banking and equity trade and what have you, um, they all have declining profits from net interest income as well. I thought that was a great statement about 
about our nod to the five to 10 year paper as well. But it's on valuations. And I wanted to just take a step back, actually, because uh, all of these banks moved in the same direction on Friday, but they haven't all moved in the same direction over a longer period of time. For instance, JP Morgan is now trading higher uh, than it was at its peak before the crisis, i.e. on March 23rd, the crisis low, it hit 79 bucks. bucks. It's now up to around about 138 bucks, uh, having closed in October at 97. So a huge, huge rally. But back on the 20th of December in 2019, it was trading 137 bucks. So very interesting to see. JP Morgan has made all of that ground back and a little bit of more. Whereas Wells Fargo, for instance, if we're doing the comparison here, nowhere near uh, its highs of the last couple of years. In fact, whereas interestingly, January 2018, uh, where it was 64 bucks as well. So that shows, as Karen was saying, enormous structural issues over at Wells and a subject we've talked about a long, long time. It is about bank closures and about your exposure to the consumer rather than your exposure to the market. So what I want to get across to the viewers is not all banks are created equal because they have very different exposures to the consumer, to business, and of course, as JP Morgan showed very expertly, uh, to equity trading. One more point is on how you value these stocks. Now, if you take a cursory look on a forward PE basis, you can't see anything different between Wells and JP. They both trade at just over 14 times. But if you dig a little bit deeper, like we like to do on this channel as well, you notice that the price to book valuation of JP versus Wells Fargo is a huge, huge disparity. JP is just trading shy of 1.7 times on a next 12 months price to book, whereas Wells trading at 0.84. So I think our viewers need to look at the banking sector in its detail rather than saying the banking sector. There was just a, one other element I wanted to work into this conversation. That was the, the European flavor that these U.S. bank numbers had. And specifically, I'm talking about the interest rate story. I mean, we've had a backdrop here in Europe where interest rates have been uh, so low or negative that it's, it's very much influenced uh, the interest uh, income that the banks earn. But if you look at the U.S. numbers uh, on J.P. Morgan, for instance, the net interest income fell uh, 7% to $13.4 billion, And that was the impact of low interest rates. So we've been talking in recent weeks about the, the inflation outlook and that finally you might have a steep to the yield curve as investors hope we're through the worst of the pandemic and eventually look forward to some sort of reflation story that impacts market rates first and then central banks later on. But uh, the feature is very much there in the form of that uh, interest decline also on fixed income. And just buried in the detail of the, the JP Morgan numbers that the fixed income market started to slow a little bit for them in terms of earnings in that final quarter. Yeah, I mean, just on the European banks, I thought it was notable that we ended last week with um, various ECB board members giving warnings, not only about whether the banks have risk provisioned sufficiently, but also whether the banks should be very cautious about restoring dividend policy. And I think, Steve, to, to pick up on your point around valuations, that seems to be the other issue that's driving expectations here, that there is this view that we will see the US banks re-engage in a buyback program in this first quarter, that we will see the US banks re-engage in a dividend policy this quarter, and all of that encouraging investors to believe that they've actually seen the worst of the uh, pandemic-related impairment period. The, the other point I just wanted to make on this is um, this transition and why you've got that uh, disparity in valuation when you look at the difference between the investment banks and those banks that are much more geared to Main Street and the real economy. And of course, it is that broad story that where we've had the monetary and the fiscal stimulus so far, it's worked to power inflation in asset prices rather than necessarily driving activity in the real economy. And of course, the big bet 
that we're discussing day in, day out here on the program is that the Biden stimulus package will just help this transition from the financial economy to the real economy. We get a reflation later on in the year and the expectation is that a lot of those banks that have been left behind because they have less uh, business in the investment community or in the financial markets, those banks will play catch up in valuation terms. Yeah, two very tiny points here. One, Charlie Scharf has got a mis-selling scandal before his era as CEO, which he's got to handle that JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon hasn't. I'm glad you mentioned Joe Biden as well, because it's going to be very, very awkward for some of these investment banks. Huge dividends, huge buybacks, and dare I say it, the bonus pool looks pretty frothy as well for some of the, the equity investment banking um, uh, bankers on Wall Street as well. How's that going to sit with a country that is in a mire, which is very deep economically in many ways, with a presidency which is more to the centre, to the left, than the previous presidency as well, when we're talking about regulation as well. So that bonus pool could be the biggest political hot potato of all time going forward. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.